If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to the first epistle, the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. Have what could possibly be considered an unusual message this morning, but I do believe it's from the Lord, and I do believe it's been confirmed through the gifts of the Spirit this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 4, while you're turning there, I want to welcome our guests again, very glad to have you with us in the house of the Lord today, very glad to have Steve's family with us today on this special occasion, amen. First Thessalonians chapter 4, <clears throat> starting to read at verse 13, says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep, and you need to understand in those verses it's not talking about a nap, it's talking about having passed from this life. Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture that as apostolics we like to read and turn to when we are preaching and teaching about the return, the promise of the Lord's return. The Scripture tells us clearly that Jesus will descend from heaven, that there is a shout, there are angelic voices, and there is a trumpet that will sound, and that in a manner, matter of milliseconds, the dead in Christ shall rise and then we who are alive and still walking with the Lord will be caught up or we will be gathered together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That's our hope and what a hope it is, what a promise it is. But this morning with what I feel is directed by the Lord, I want to spend a little time on a subject that was the particular focus of why the Apostle Paul reminded the church in Thessalonica of this promise. And that's in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, where it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Paul said, I do not want you to be unaware that when you think about those that you have lost, when you think about your loved ones that have passed away in the faith, that when you are sorrowful or when you grieve, you should not do it in the same manner as people that have no hope. And so I'm speaking about grief this morning. Speaking about grief. We've dedicated a baby. We've dealt with one end of life. And in a matter of minutes, we're heading toward the other end. And, uh, but before anyone becomes concerned or nervous, I have not heard from the Lord about anyone's pending demise today. So please don't be like the disciples at the Last Supper and say, Is it I? That's not the purpose of this message. Grief, according to the dictionary, is intense sorrow, especially caused 
by someone's death. And uh, we're not going to cover everything today because we would be here for a very long time. And, and every, it's very important we understand everybody deals with things in a unique fashion. The tapestry of each of our lives is unique and belongs to us alone. Your life is your life and your story. But there are, however, ingredients or components that every life will contain. As one generation passes and another arises, we will all go through the experience of loss. It may be an older family member who has lived a long life, or it could be a sudden accident, an illness, a tragedy, where someone is taken before their time, as we like to say. Let me pause here and say this might seem like an unusual subject to cover in church, but the reality of the gospel is that it's preparing us for the end. That's what the message is all about, really. So it fits. Amen. Some of us have possibly suffered the loss of parents or grandparents, some of us siblings, some of us possibly even children. And Scripture tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die. And the facts of life are that the longer you live, the more people that you know that have kept that appointment. That's just how it is. They are the statistics. And while some of those losses are connected to the seasons of life, there are some here that may have endured circumstances that we would not consider part of the normal pattern or cycle of life and have been incredibly difficult seasons to go through. And each of those circumstances causes us to feel the pain of loss, regardless of the details. Even if it is something of an expected outcome, it still has an impact on us. I'll give you an example. As a pastor, the very first funeral that I was privileged to officiate at was for Sister Ida Turkington, Brother Paul's mum. And uh, she was a faithful saint in the church who walked with the Lord for many decades and, if my memory serves, was lived well into her 90s. And we would probably all agree that that was a full life well-lived. In more recent years, I officiated at the funeral of a six-month-old baby girl who was never well enough to leave the hospital in which she was born, which was very, very confronting. And these are two extreme examples of loss at either end of the spectrum or the scale of life, but both still produce feelings of grief for those who remain. You know, we can easily say, well, you know, so-and-so lived a long time. It doesn't mean that we don't feel grief and loss. And those feelings and that difficult road are going to be walked by all of us at some point in our lives. Amen. I hope we don't go out of here all with a, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to treat this with a certain reverence, but I don't want everybody leaving the building depressed and, and feeling miserable. I'm hoping that we can turn that around by the time we're done. But there, there, there are some erroneous ideas about Christians and grief, some false thinking, some false ideas. Some seem to believe that because we trust God, we should never be sad, that we should never be down or upset, and they have twisted understanding of verses such as, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God. If you're going to say that to somebody who's lost a loved one, I suggest you do it out of arm's reach, because you may find them responding a little dramatically. Or maybe they would say that because the joy of the Lord is our strength, Christians should never be sad or grieve or mourn. Unfortunately, these very incorrect views can lead to Christians suffering more than necessary while grieving as they try to keep the right spirit or the right attitude. Amen. Scripture lets us know, however, that there is a time to lose 
There is a time to mourn and there is a time that we should weep with those that weep. Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. Now there are a collection of theological views and ideas around the scene of Lazarus's tomb, but regardless of how we choose to interpret all of that, Jesus was moved emotionally for the family, for the friends, and for his friend Lazarus. Grief is not weakness. Grief is not weakness. In fact, the failure to grieve is probably closer to weakness than grief actually is. It is not a lack of faith. It is not failing God to feel grief. Grief is a normal response to pain, to loss, and to suffering. And it is impossible to love somebody and not deeply feel their absence. That's impossible. If you don't feel it, you didn't love them, no matter how strong your faith may be. As Christians, it is both normal and healthy to be able to still trust God, to still believe that he holds all things in his hands, to still have our hope completely placed in Jesus, but at the same time feel the grief that tragedy and loss bring. Those things do and can exist together. When we feel the depths of grief, it is not because we lack faith, but it is simply a response to our suffering. Amen. In fact, it is a healthy thing to allow the grief process to run, we might say, its course, not that I think it necessarily ever actually finishes, but to serve its purpose in helping us come to terms with the events of our lives. Mary stood at the cross and watched her son suffer the agony of crucifixion, knowing that he was innocent of all charges. I promise you that a mother's heart was broken that day, that she would have been overwhelmed with grief. In the Old Testament, Job modeled for us the balance between being able to be overcome with grief and yet to refuse to give up on God. He did both of those things at the same time. He had a lot of emotion. He had, you know, he had a whole bunch of, when you read the book of Job, there's a lot of emotions being presented there. But yet he would not deny the Lord. Some of you will know the name of psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who is credited with identifying five stages of grief. The book she wrote called On Death and Dying, written back in 1969, And uh, since then, that list has been a little further developed to include two more stages, and now people refer to the seven stages of grief. And I've got them on a slide. You may have heard of some of these. There's shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance and hope, and processing grief. And even though there is some substance to every area on this list, grief is a very personal thing. The timing of these stages, the order can vary and they can even overlap and be happening at the same time. It's not, it's not a mechanical process. It's not something that happens in a lab, but we are all unique individuals. And it's important we understand that grief can impact every facet of our lives. There's another professional, a clinical psychologist by the name of, and I'm going to get her surname wrong, but that's okay because you probably don't know it. Dr. Susan Zonbelt-Smenge is her name. Would have been a lot easier if her name was Smith. But she suggests that grief affects us 
in the following ways. It affects us emotionally. In our emotions, we can be irritable. We can be fearful. We can be volatile. We can feel numbness. We can feel despair. It can affect us behaviorally. We can withdraw socially. We can experience disrupted sleep, restlessness, bursting into tears at unexpected times. Grief can affect us cognitively or how our minds work. We can experience forgetfulness, losing track of time, an unusual loss of concentration, feeling overwhelmed with thoughts like, I don't think I can do this. Distorted thinking patterns, being irrational and not sure how to make sense of things. In fact, they suggest that somewhere close to 80% of grievers experience what they call the face in the crowd syndrome where they think they hear or glimpse a deceased loved one because of the impact that grief is having on their cognitive functions. Grief affects us physically. We may be prone to more frequent illness. We may have no appetite. We may even lose our sense of taste. It's not just COVID that does that. We may find ourselves sleeping too much or too little. And as believers, grief can affect us spiritually. Why has God abandoned me? Again, if God manifest on the flesh could hang upon a cross and say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he was sinless. We can feel those things. We can ask questions like, why isn't my faith insulating me from such painful Grief, And then because of the way our brains are wired, we start looking for what we did wrong, which has generally got nothing to do with it. And this leads us to need to understand that as the body of Christ, we need to allow both space and grace for unusual reactions for those who grieve. We need to recognize that they may be irritable. They may be irrational. They may be unreliable. They may be withdrawn and they may demonstrate strange behaviors. Those things can all be a product of grief. We need to be willing to be patient, to be supportive, to recognize that those people are impacted by the pain that they are experiencing and they simply do not know how to respond. People who experience the loss of a loved one, especially a spouse, will often go through a period of something of an identity crisis. Who am I now that my spouse is not here anymore? Who am I? What does my identity now look like? Previously, particularly if they were married for a long time, their identities were closely woven together, and now a massive part of that is simply gone. There's a reason that Scripture describes marriage as becoming one flesh. When that oneness is interrupted after possibly decades of a relationship, it can be difficult to rediscover who they are without their spouse, who they are. As part of the grieving process, they may be also overcome with emotion by things that seem insignificant, things that seem secondary because they're connected to that relationship with that loved one. A very simple example of that might be something as basic as, well, I'll probably be called sexist for choosing the ladies, the example, but a woman experiencing a problem with her car and the sudden realization that her husband is no longer there to take care of it. He used to deal with that stuff. That can bring a tidal wave of feelings of loss and sorrow. It's just a car service. But because of the connection, the emotion can be overwhelming. And as believers, we must understand that there is no set time frame 
in which the process is simply completed. You don't finish the course of grief and get a certificate for graduation. It doesn't work like that. But rather, grief is a process that is gradually being able to return to life and to function again and to begin to move forward. The truth is that in much the same way as a person may need to reestablish identity, particularly in a, in a situation where it's a spouse that's been lost, they now have to begin the process of creating a new normal. Their previous normal no longer exists because of the person that they have lost. They're no longer going to eat meals with that person, take holidays together, or make plans for the future. What should have been happy milestones, birthdays, anniversaries, Father's Day, Mother's Day, and so on, are now turned upside down and can become days that people would rather avoid. A new normal will take some time to establish and can be overwhelming. As the body of Christ, we have to minister to those that grieve with a careful balance of compassion and hope. They must have hope. We must desperately, and I say this emphatically, desperately avoid cliches that sound like we've randomly picked them from a promise box. Anybody remember those? I don't know if they're still at Christian bookstores. You just get a pretty little box and had little cards in it with a list of scriptures and you'd take one out and read the promise for that day. Kind of a weird Christian way of an astrology, I guess. I don't know. But I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But, but we've got to be very, very careful that we don't just spit out cliches because we feel the need to fill the awkward silence. It is better to say nothing at all and simply be present than to feel compelled to fill the awkward silence with an even more awkward cliche. We need to acknowledge the pain, not pretend that it isn't there. We do need, however, with great sensitivity to gradually lead and encourage toward a transcendent faith, or in other words, a faith that is bigger than our circumstance, that is willing to believe in and trust God without having answers, and therein is one of the biggest challenges. In our grief and our suffering... You may feel anger toward God. You may want to scream, why? And we can be faced with a choice to hate God or to be desperate for His presence. And our task as the body of Christ is to sensitively steer people toward the refuge of the presence of God. Again, you know, this, like a crack in a record, we emphasize the need for the Word of God. The need for the Word of God. The Word of God, especially the Psalms, gives us examples of those who are overwhelmed and question God. Multiple times in the Psalms, the writer said, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou cast down? And we read of these people who were overwhelmed and did question God, and yet they often reached a point where regardless they trusted God, and they concluded that God is for me that he is our refuge, that he is our hiding place. We unfortunately have a falsely constructed modern Western concept that faith is all about positive outcomes and great solutions in this life. But biblical faith is about trusting God even when we do not have answers. That really is the essence of genuine biblical faith, that when I don't know why, when I cannot see, 
when he does not explain, I will trust him. Matthew chapter 11, very emotional passage of scripture. Matthew 11 and 2 says, Now when John, as John the Baptist, had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And the disciples said unto him, being Jesus, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And almost seemingly disconnected from what he's just said, Jesus said, And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. John the Baptist already knew what Jesus was doing. He was already aware of the miraculous. But it seems as though the message that Jesus sent back to John included the understanding that he wasn't coming to deliver him from prison. He said, John, don't be offended when you don't understand. I spent some time, I had had to teach on something similar to this subject a couple of years ago at our National Ministers and Leaders Retreat, and as part of that process, I spent some time talking to a very dear friend of mine who some of you know, who almost two years ago lost a son in what we would consider the prime of his life. I wanted to get some insight into this topic from him. And if you know Brother Tom Trimble, you, you know that he actually wrote a song about John the Baptist's experience and uh, about the song included the idea of coming to terms with the fact that my will and his will are not always the same. But how I would like to orchestrate is not how he always does things. And as believers, we must believe that God can do all things. We must believe that nothing is impossible for him. But we must also at the same time accept that he does not do all things that we desire. The fact that he can does not always mean that he will. And we have to trust him. Again, that's faith. We will bury loved ones. We will endure suffering. One of the things that my friend shared with me was that in the grief process, he he spoke about something that he called the concentration of grief of how when he and his wife lost their son in his early to mid-30s, that when that grief was overwhelming for them, they couldn't really look to each other because they were both in the depths of that grief as much as the other one was. But to add people to their environment, perhaps other family members or people connected to their situation who didn't have that same overwhelming depth of grief, it helped to dilute the concentration. I think it's a very important principle that we understand that others, not necessarily doing anything, but simply being around are able to help dilute the concentration of grief. Amen. You know, there are a lot of books. You get online and go to Amazon, order a book, Brother Steve might pack it for you. There are a lot of books about grief and loss and ministering to people who are grieving. And one that's something of a classic is a book called The Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. But unfortunately, you don't always have time to read a book when you find yourself facing a situation. So for a couple of minutes, and I'm not going to be too much longer, I want to consider some things that, as the family of God, we need to be aware of when someone that we care about is grieving. As I already mentioned, stay away from cliches. People don't need greeting card statements when they're being overwhelmed with grief. Never, even though it may be well-intended, 
Never say, I know how you feel. Never say that to somebody who's lost somebody. You may have experienced loss, maybe even a similar loss, but everybody's situation is unique. Your spouse was not their spouse. Your child was not their child. Your parent was not their parent. My friend has another son and daughter, and somebody somewhat carelessly said to him, well, at least you have your other children. Please don't ever say anything like that. It will be very hard for me to address that in a godly fashion. It's important we understand that we should not feel obligated to say anything. Sometimes just being present is enough. And we should be able to ask, would you like me to stay or would you prefer to be alone? Because when someone's grieving, they're going to feel both of those ways at times. Sometimes they'll want to be alone. Other times they'll want somebody present, not necessarily to talk to, but simply to be in the house. Something I've learned that we have to be aware of is various cultural practices. We're going to celebrate All Nations Sunday. Every culture has different traditions that surround death and loss. And we need to have a sensitivity to some of those things. And some of you know, I think I may have shared some of this before, but we had a family here some years ago who the father of that family very sadly passed away. And we were, I was at the hospital when he passed. And then my wife and I were at their home the next night. And then in our thinking, we gave them space. Turned out in that culture, they expected us to be there every night until the funeral. I didn't know that. I had to try to mend that afterwards. So it's important that we are aware of cultural practices that can guide us as we respond to grief. As I've mentioned, part of grieving is reaching a place where we accept that we may never have the answer to why. It is not your job to provide those answers. Some people, well-meaning, try to come up with some sort of answer. Rarely ever helps. You know, well, the the Lord had to take them. He wanted them there more than you needed them here. I mean... If I can be plain, I've heard some people say stupid things. And their intentions are right, but you're better off saying nothing than saying something cliche. Amen. It's okay to say to somebody, I have no idea what you're going through. But I love you, and I'm here for anything that you may need. Somebody said that being able to help with practical things can be a huge help. Cook a meal. Don't stay, just drop it off. Don't feel the need to come in and make yourself a cup of tea and sit with everybody unless they really want you to. You might be picking up the kids from school. You might be taking care of something so they don't have to. Mow a lawn, clean a house. Do something so they don't need to take care of it. Somebody said that when you grieve, you never actually get over it. You simply just get used to it. And I think that's echoing. Sometimes we think there's a point that it just sort of disappears. But I don't think that's true. I think you simply learn to live with the change. It is okay, I'll say this again, it is okay to be a Christian and to grieve. But as we read in our opening text, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Amen. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that Jesus bore our griefs, that he carried our sorrows. Amen. The Lord spoke to us this morning through the gifts of the Spirit about worshipping and living and hoping like we're already on the other side. Amen. And as believers, we believe in victory. Amen. We believe that we are victorious in Jesus Christ. But we need to be careful how we define victory. 
because we have a narrow view of victory as always being healed and always being delivered in this life, there's coming a point where we're going to have a crisis of faith because they were not always healed or delivered in the Scriptures. Read Hebrews 11. Some great stories of faith, but some great stories of faith about people who did not receive deliverance. They were not always healed. They weren't always delivered and neither will we be. But if our definition of victory means that it means that we make heaven, that changes everything. Amen. Victory, in a biblical sense, means that we make it to heaven. Winning means that what we read about in that promise comes to pass. That when that day comes, that our feet leave the floor and we go to be with Him. Amen. That's what victory looks like to the child of God. You know, when we're experiencing grief... We do not need a God who can make a star or hang a galaxy. We need the fellowship of his suffering. We need to know that he is with us in our pain. John 16 and 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That expression, be of good cheer, does not mean putting on a fake smile and pretending that the sun is shining, but rather when you look at the phrase that it is translated from, it means to have courage. It means to take comfort. It doesn't mean to pretend that everything's right in your world, but it means to hang on and to trust in the Lord. Revelation 21 and 4, it's a verse of scripture I memorized as a boy, and it says, And God shall wipe away all tears, from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Promises like the ones found in this verse are the reason that we grieve differently from those who have no hope. We know that there is a day coming when all tears will be wiped away, and somehow, in a, in a way that only God can, sorrow will be no more. I don't pretend to understand it this morning. I don't pretend to know how God is going to do it because I believe that we're going to remember that he saved us. I don't believe we're going to be walking around heaven going, how did we get here? How did this happen? We're going to remember that he saved us. We're going to remember that he redeemed us and yet somehow in our capacity to remember that, sorrow and grief will be no more. Amen. That's why we grieve differently. That's our hope. Amen. Amen. Church, it is okay to grieve. It is okay to grieve. And it is okay to feel overwhelmed with sorrow. But not like those who have no hope. Amen. Stand with me if you would this morning.